Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so thrilled today to be talking about the series A League of Their Own. We are joined today by co-creator, writer, and director of episode six, Will Graham, as well as writer and executive producer, Desta Tedros-Ruff. And I wanted to start by talking to both of you a little bit about the journey of, of really finding the voice in, in how you've told this show, because one of the things that's so beautiful about it is it's it's a show that has a lot of social commentary about the time period at which it takes place. Um, and at the same time, it's told in a way that just has such hopefulness, optimism, and incredible passion from all of the characters in it. So it feels very lighthearted and you know, very accessible in the way that you approach telling the story alongside Abby Jacobson, co-creating it and the rest of the writing team. Um, and I was just really interested in in how you all found the, the tonality that, that felt the most important and how you wanted to portray this story episodically when you were all beginning this journey together. You wanna start, Will? Uh, sure, yeah. I, I, um, I think that there's a couple steps in that process and, and I'm glad that you, you started with that because it's something that's really important to us. Um, I think the first step of it is just Penny Marshall's incredible film, um, which was released in 1992. It was so groundbreaking for its time. And, and I think one of the things that I loved about that as a kid, and that I think so many of our uh, people of our, on our team loved, um, is it's not, I think when we tell the story of first, we all often tell them as these sort of bigger than life, noble, you know, figures that you walk away thinking like, well, I could never be that strong, or I could never be that um, great. The movie, these are flawed characters. They're funny. They're making mistakes. They're not really thinking about the rest of the world. They're just thinking about their dreams and getting the things they want and what it means to be on this team. And it has this amazing balance of, you know, really hilarious, sometimes very absurd comedy and, um, and really heartfelt uh, emotional moments. So in some ways, you know, we knew that we didn't want to make a reboot of um, the film. That was never the idea, but we wanted to go back and look at the authentic stories underneath it. And there are so many um, of this generation of women who wanted to play ball and then look at it through the lens of that tone. And the other thing I'll say is just that the actual stories, the, the people that we've talked to who were trying to play ball at this time, uh, they're joyful stories. They're so fun there's a lot of pain underneath them and there's obstacles that they had to overcome or, or deal with along the way, but there's also just an incredible amount of joy. And, and I think that has a lot to do with the tone of the show too. Yeah. I think a couple of things in addition to that, I think just to sort of, uh, Will, this is something you always talk about just to the actual tone, like really pushing the comedy and the drama and using like the comedy to push the drama and the drama to push the comedy, I think of the show, because I think that is very true to life, right? Like even when you're going through tragic things, um, they can still be funny and they can still be joyful. Even when you're going through like funny things, there can be like real punches in the gut in that. And I think um, that was for me really exciting about the show. And I think that was a departure from the way the movies, which I think balances both of them, but we sort of try to push it on both ends. Um, and I also think just to sort of the voice of the show, it really is a true collaboration. There are so many voices that are involved in the writer's room, from the actors bringing themselves on set to you know every single person in the crew who worked on the show. Um, and it really was a space for collaboration listening. It is, as we've always said, like a team effort to make the show because it is so big. And I think every, just the sort of foundational understanding that we, we celebrate you bringing yourself, you know, bringing these authentic stories and you bringing yourself to them 
really influenced, um, I think, the tone and the voice of the show. Yeah, and not to like quote Desta after, now we're just handing it back and forth, but like one thing that Desta um, kind of came to and, and became a phrase for all of us in the writing process is like the show is about the work of joy. It's about the things that you have to do to get those ecstatic moments and those moments of really seeing yourself in other people and having a community. And I think we also just thought about what do we need right now? What do we want to watch right now? You know, the show's set in the middle of World War II. It's not a time that is renowned for its joyfulness. Um, we're also living in a really unstable time where sometimes it's hard for at least me to be like, what is next week going to be like? What is three months going to be like? What is my life going to be like? What's going to happen to my queer marriage? You know, um, and the idea that you can find joy and find flashes and moments of life and find community in those moments of darkness, I think um, was really powerful to us. And it's, it's something we definitely wanted to bring to the audience as well. Absolutely. And, and Will was bringing up there, you know, there's so many stories within this, this realm that you could have told and so many other characters that you could have touched upon. And so I wanted to ask about that, that journey of, of research in the development process for the scripts and, and in the way that you're looking at research in that, in that lens of not just what seems interesting to me, but what's really going to fit the narrative arc of an episodic telling of, of this time period and, and these characters and this team and, and how you kind of looked to a lot of the research to distill down what would really work and translate over into the television show in an episodic manner. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the way this started uh, really was looking back at these real stories. And I was watching the movie, which I, I knew by heart. And I sort of started to wonder about some of the stories outside of it. And, and as you've said, and others have said, there's a lot of subtext in the movie that doesn't necessarily get touched on directly, especially around queer stories. So once I started to look into those, suddenly it became not like, what would you do with this? But but more like, oh my God, there's so much. <laughs> there's um, the stories of women like uh, Mamie Johnson, Tony Stone and Connie Morgan and hundreds of other women like them who maybe didn't get quite as far. Um, Mamie, Tony and Connie were uh, three women who weren't allowed to play in the AGPBL, but went on to play in the Negro Leagues, which in and of itself is a gigantic story that um, people don't know much about. There were also the stories uh, that got left out of the movie simply because it was two and a half hours long. And when we talked to Penny Marshall a couple of years ago, she said, well, the original cut was four and a half hours long. <laughs> uh, so there was a lot that she didn't um, get to do just because of the time constraints. And then there was, I think, the story that you couldn't have told in uh, 92, which um, is about the queer community that was fostered within the league, but also queer communities that were fostered across the country at this time um, because people were all of a sudden thrust into communities that they weren't uh, used to being a part of. And in Max, uh, played by Shantae Adams' story, we see a hint of that in the factory, we see it in the peaches, but there's a much bigger, bigger um, societal story uh, that was happening at that time too. So we um, started the research right away it's still an ongoing process. At this point, we have thousands and thousands of pages and hundreds and hundreds of interviews. And um, I think what we tried to do was listen to all those voices and then look at the world now and find the ways that they connected 
Um, and then just really let the characters drive the show and tell us where they wanted to go. The show in a lot of ways, is about embracing your own desires. Um, so that in some ways told us what we needed to do and what we didn't, you know, at least for season one. The only little thing I would add to that, sort of to the point I was making before, because the show was a collaboration. I think so much of it, I mean, the research speaks to it. It was sort of like always um, rooted and grounded in, in authenticity and truth. And I think truth of the stories and also as we built the characters, I think a lot of it was reflective of our own truth because there is a timeliness to these issues and also like a timelessness. Um, so sort of everybody bringing themselves and letting that, like what resonated sort of with our own experiences of like, like for me, a black queer woman um, in, in some of the Max stories and the Peach stories, like sort of letting that guide um, how we develop these characters and, and the journey um, that we were going to take them on. Yeah, but there was and is a lot of hard things in that research and then a lot of real celebration. And when we talked to Maybelle Blair for the first time, who people now, she told us her stories, uh, I guess now four years ago uh, in a kind of very hushed, quiet tone, but she told the world a couple of months ago that she is gay and she played in the league and this was part of her experience. We asked her what it was like to find so many other people who were like her. And she said, it was a party. And I think that for me and for Abby and for all of us was a moment that we just were like, oh, that's the show. Um, is that celebration of coming together, but a lot of things have to happen along the way, not all of them pleasant in order for that to happen. I also love that in the way that the story is told, um, there's this structural element where everything's really centered around these two tandem stories. You've got Carson kind of coming into herself and you've got Max coming into herself and they're both on their own individual journeys, but then you start to kind of gradually create this slow burn friendship and this connectivity between the two of them where they in essence become a community for each other as well. And I thought that was such a beautiful thread that was handled really beautifully in, in the way that it's told in the story. Um, and so at what point did you all realize that it was really important to, you know, have these two narratives coexisting so fully side by side? And, and then how did you kind of find the beats of, okay, when are they going to start gradually coming together? What's, what's that initial meet going to be? And then where are they going to reach the point where they do start to open up to each other and become confidants? Well, I think to, to sort of the point we were talking about before, you know, that is what, that is the real story, not, not necessarily Max and Carson being friends, but like we said, the Max character is, is inspired by real life women who played in the Negro Leagues and were amazing baseball players. And the movie sort of hints at that. Well, I think this is something you always say in the sense of like, it was Penny Marshall's way to nod at that without being able to put in the movie just for sort of space and time. But as, as time has gone on, it's more of a reflection of like what isn't in the movie as opposed to sort of what is. So I think it was always about telling that story as well, but we were, I felt like in the room and, and in, in construction sort of very um, conscious of what the world they were stepping into. We were very intentional about the moments they could have together. That it, it, it should and does feel like they're tandem because they're not in a world where they can, can, can step and slot right into a friendship because this is the 1940s. So there were all the moments that you see them together. I just remember we talked a lot, a lot about them, how we can connect them both, you know, they're connected in baseball, they're connected in queerness, but how we can step into this world um, together. And it, it's hard sometimes because Shantae and Abby have such great chemistry and they're so amazing together that you want them together as much as possible, but the world won't let them. So to me, they're, I mean, all these stories are, but I think their relationship is both an example of, 
of joy because there is, it is so, it is so fun to have them together, but also the work of joy because it is, those moments are, are, are sort of rare. They're building, but they are rare intentionally because of the world they live in. Yeah. I think that that's um, so well put. And, and I think, uh, it was a place that we really brought our own feelings about the contemporary world and um, and how those kind of relationships really unfold. But I think we're also just really interested in relationships that don't fit neatly into a box and that don't necessarily fit neatly into a world. And these are two women that we're saying are two of the most talented athletes of their generation and they love the same sport and they sort of recognize each other as um, significant others, although not, not necessarily romantically, and they have this common bond of queerness and neither of them has any space in either of their lives to really talk about and explore those things. But that doesn't mean it's easy to talk about them and explore them with each other, but it is worthwhile at the end of the day. And they do both take things that they need away from, from that. And you're both touching upon there as well, the, the, the contemporary lens of, of how the story is being told with that particular time period. And I think that's such a great point about these two characters that ideally narratively, you'd love to bring them together more, but you have to find the very realistic settings and situations that work within the structure of the story that you're telling. And so what, what were some of the challenges that came in in trying to find a lot of the stories that you wanted to tell and the way that you wanted to tell them, um, you know, and coming at it with a contemporary lens, but still making sure that at the end of the day, you were being very true to the time period. I, don't, I mean, the things that stand out to me, which are interesting is even just moments in production where you would have like, do you remember the conversation we had about the crowd, like the crowd that could be at the stadium? Mm -hmm. Like, cause, cause looking at a contemporary lens, I want it to be a mixed crowd. Like I want it to be a full crowd in the audience, but like, it can't be because that's not the story we're telling and that wouldn't be true to the times. So it was like, so we're like, okay, maybe we'll have a 10% black crowd. Like what would be realistic for the times? So I have a very distinct memory of, um, it's another crowd story, but we had this black soldier who was an extra who's in the front row. And I'm like, this feels really awkward to do this, but he can't be there because that's not real to what the time in the show was. So there's there's an there's an element of like sort of to, to sort of be true to the times and to make um, open perspectives to like what the reality of racism or, or um, homophobia or the problems of intersectionality are, which I think we're very aware with our modern lens. We have to sort of fit it into what was real for the times, but it was it was hard. Uh, not, I think, narratively, but I think there's there's sort of a dance and a wrestle with. Sort of yeah. Not. No, and I think I mean uh, a thing that um, we tried to pay a lot of attention to there is the difference between sort of wish fulfillment yeah. and revisionism. Um, that like there is a part of the show that is, as you said, joyful and fun. And that's true in different parts of all of the stories we explored in the research. Um, uh, there's a lot of joy in those stories, but there's always a temptation in storytelling and in writing to try to simplify things, right? Like, can't we just get them together faster? Can't we just make this happen? And so I think we just really tried to resist those urges and we spent a lot of time talking. Um, and listening uh, about the different ways that we could um, potentially approach that. I think the other thing that's kind of interesting in the question you asked is there's a lot of this research that doesn't exist um, when it comes to 
what a conversation between Carson and Max would have been like. And in different ways, I'm sure those conversations did happen when it comes to really how these um, queer communities functioned. Um, the, the research is pretty scant. So there were spaces that we had to fill with a sense of looking at other stories, using our own imagination and, and filling in um, the blanks. And in some sense, I think that's was part of what was exciting uh, and challenging about doing the show. And then I also wanted to talk about the the baseball within the series as well, and and also ask about Justine Siegel's involvement, who was a baseball coach on the series, and I know that she was integral in helping to work on a lot of those scenes. And what's so great about all of the sports scenes is that every single one of those is driving the story, is telling us more about character, um, you know. And if people are avid fans of the sport, they're invested in it, and if they're not, it's still a narrative drive to the show at the same time. Um, was she a part of the process during the writing as well because I think it's so fascinating to look at the writing process for scenes like that as well which is such a a visual element versus being so dialogue driven in a very different way yeah I mean you go no I was gonna say I think we thought a lot about with this because that's what's so great about baseball is is the amount of presence and really the idea of leaving it all on the field so how can we dramatize the stories that are going on off the field and have them play on the field. Um, and also, so I think from a writing process, we, we try to be really thoughtful and intentional about that. Um, and I also just think it was super important to honor the movie, to honor female athletes, to just, they just had to look like legit and badass. And all of that, Justine was a part of. But we talked to her in the writer's room, both about her own experience as sort of a, a female player and, and, and what she had gone through. Um, and, and just about the sport. And that was, so I think it's both narratively, like I felt she was involved. I mean, she was involved in pilot too, right? Yeah. Um, narratively, she helped sort of guide our stories and also just the nuts and bolts of, of the sport and, and how we could celebrate that. And from a production standpoint as well, you know, you and the rest of the team were tasked with not just creating, okay, this is their home field. This is where they're playing most of their games, but they're also playing other places and they're on the road. Um, and so you're having to, in essence, visually construct this entire world uh, within the production setting. And so I was really, really fascinated in some of the elements of finding locations and finding areas where you could repurpose a little bit and make it feel appropriate to the time period visually on screen. Cause I'm sure that there were a myriad of challenges that came with all of that. Yeah, <laughs> there were a myriad of challenges that um, that came with that. And part of it um, to, to what you've already said, Mara, is just, uh, the scope of the show is really big, right? Um, there are two main stories that we're following and they only connect in certain moments. So both of them need their worlds of baseball and their um, worlds of work and their worlds of home. And those have to touch in different ways. We were very lucky to be shooting the show in Pittsburgh, um, which is almost like a museum of the 1940s. Um, and, and in some ways, like looks much more like 1940s Rockford than actual Rockford um, does now, although Rockford is wonderful and we've spent a lot of time there um, too. And we were really blessed to have Victoria Paul as our production designer, who has a spirit that is similar to um, many of the women that we've met uh, who played at the time and a fierceness and a sense of, fight and we're going to make it um, work. And I think th those two things are really responsible for a lot of the scope of the show, which I think a lot of people are responding to and the sort of bigness of the feeling uh, of it. 
Um, and, and then we just did an enormous amount of research. So it's been really fun for us um, when people from Rockford watch the show. They're like, oh, there's the Logley Market. There's the Booker T. Washington Center. There's the, and we tried to really, you know, we talked to a lot of people who lived um, in Rockford at the time, including an incredible group of Black women in their 80s and 90s that was um, called together for us by Pat Reed. Um, and just tried to capture as much of the essence of their experiences as we possibly could. And obviously, you know, with what we were talking about before, with this centralized storyline being focused around Carson and around Max, um, you know, there's so many other characters within this ensemble. And what's so brilliant is the way that every single one of them is so fully layered and we really get to know them throughout the course of the season. And it feels like every episode, there's little moments that you're finding to give them, whether it's a full narrative beat within the episode or whether it's an exchange of looks or the dynamic within the larger group. And, and those ensemble scenes are really, really used to their fullest to drive that forward. Um, and so how much did you look towards the central line of Carson and Max in terms of the, the different journeys that you wanted each of the supporting characters to be going on alongside them as well? Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think thematically when you're going through, I mean, I don't think of it as much as sort of Carson or Max storylines, but just sort of thematically within the episode, how we can build uh, the other characters and the ensemble characters' journeys kind of around what we're trying to say with it. And I that to me is more... Um, I think in, in the building of the episode, it was really more about theme because we always tried to connect when we could Max and Carson thematically sort of through the journeys. And then I think the other characters also built on. And also just to to the point of how everybody had the fullness of, of, of the ensemble characters. That's also, I would give a lot of credit to the actors in general to sort of building themselves, bringing their character to, it's hard in an ensemble piece, right? Because there are, especially I think when you're on the Peaches side where there are so many different players and you know, you're know you limited as far as story and screen time, but they sort of, they brought their character to every moment. Like one of my favorite moments is, I think it's in, episode, it's the second episode where Dove says something to a heckler and is like, you can't, I cannot remember the line, but it's like, you can't use sand shrimp to, to catch a tarpon or something like that. And, and Kelly who plays Jess is just, they're just like, she just nods. She's like, well, yeah. And it's like, it's so, she, the character saying nothing, yet everything. And I feel like there are so many moments that are not a credit to our writing, but really just to the actors bringing themselves and playing every moment on screen as a character. Yeah, I think that, I mean, we're so lucky with this cast and you could pick any one of them and we could talk about them all, uh, all day long. Um, but, you know, Kelly as Jess, Kate Berlant as Shirley, uh, Benny Solet Camello as Clance, uh, Lee Robinson as Birdie. Every time you cut to them, they're doing something, even if they don't have uh, a ton of actual dialogue in the scene and, and that helps tell the story. But I also think um, for me anyway, it's sort of, what is your actual experience of coming into a group? Um, and you, you come in and you're seeing things through your lens and you're picking up details about people. And then slowly you start to realize the other stories that are connecting people around you. And, oh, maybe that person has a crush on that person. And, oh, there's something going on with those two, but I'm not sure what it is. So I think on, on both 
uh, in Shantae's story and uh, in Abby's story, we tried to kind of create that feeling of coming into the show with them and then sort of blooming outwards into the other stories. And then by the end of the season, you're in a place where you're really spending time with all of those characters and hopefully they all have their own kind of organic stories and, and you understand the whole world of it a little better. Absolutely. And and off the back of that, Will, I did want to ask you a little bit about directing on the show as well, because to that same point with the the lens of the camera, there's kind of a couple of different things at service visually with, you know, how we're telling the story when we've got all of these characters in a room together and the way that, you know, you're capturing all those little looks and exchanges, um, you know, against those moments where there are the more intimate moments where there's just a couple of characters on screen together and we're really just kind of connecting in a different way. And then also, again, how you're using the lens out in the field during games as well to tell us the story and so what were some of the the most important elements that became part of the visual language for you and the rest of the team in directing the series um well I think starting with big ensemble scenes like if you look at the um bar sequence and the party sequence in um in episode six which is the one I directed I think because you never have enough time and there's always an unlimited number of shots that you could get to tell the story in a, um, a more complete way. The thing that was incredibly helpful was the idea of point of view and who you're really entering the scene through. And then where does that point of view shift? And that sort of tells you where you need to be um, in the scenes. Because in, in a lot of those ensemble scenes, there's really sort of three or four beats. And sometimes they belong to different characters. So where's the moment where you're moving or sort of shifting uh, the the lens from um, one to the other? But it's also just part of the joy of the show and the fun of doing the blocking for the show is that feeling of being in a group and constantly looking in a different direction and getting a different emotional piece or um, moment from someone. And then with the baseball, I think what we really tried to focus on more than anything was just making it feel real and trying to capture it in a way that felt live and sort of celebrated the, the sweatiness and the messiness and the dirt. Because in some way by doing that, you also sort of prove that the idea of the AAG PBL celebrating um, sort of high femme presentation uh, is impossible, that these women were extraordinary athletes and it didn't matter if you put them in skirts or in pants, they proved that by the intensity of how they played. So there we used, we ran the baseball sequences in long sequences um, and we used um, sort of live cameras to, to capture them to try to get that feeling. Well, I also think it's something just to the visual language of so something you did really well in six and, and different directors did in different ways, but Jamie specifically, I think a lot of like um, oneers and sort of um, uh, wider takes uh, which is something uh, we've been talking about a lot of the Oceans movies that like you see Soderbergh do in like the Oceans 11 movies um, because there's so much going on with, especially with the Peaches when there's so much going on and they're all sort of playing and there's improv um, I think being a little bit wider and following like with, with the lens of POV um, allows you to get all the moments that are going on because they're just like the dynamics um, that if you were close um, or if you were cutting, you would miss all the sort of fun. And it, I think it's also fun for a rewatch to go see like the different character moments that are happening here, there, wherever in the background. But it, I feel like we did that a lot in the show, but in six, there's some really, really great 
um, class. But that yeah. is, it's so um, true what Justice said about the layers of the show. And personally, I think it's been so fun for us just to see people watching it now, like five and six and seven times, which is completely insane yeah. uh, uh, to us and picking up these little moments. Oh, like, look at what's happening here. Oh, I didn't notice that Jess said this thing in Spanish to Lupe. And that means that Jess has been learning Spanish in that moment. Like there's, um, there's, uh, layers in depth to the show that I think, as Desta said, a lot of it really comes from the actors, um, but it's it's just wonderful to see it, uh, how it's affecting the audience. It absolutely is. And I think there's there's absolutely a reason why people are watching the show already, you know, even just in the, the short period that it's been out multiple times. Um, you know, there's such richly layered characters and you've done such a fantastic job alongside the rest of the team. So thank you so much to both of you for talking about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. For having us.